as we become more high tech in this world, what we really need to focus on are high touch skills because the high tech will always be there. The computers are going to be doing more and more and more, right? I mean, one of the great things about what we've seen during this time is the growth of telemedicine. But the reality is this, there's still a human element that you need to have there, right? If you're getting a terminal diagnosis, we need that human touch, that human interaction. And it's not just the emotional and social skills that are important. When futurists look at the future, they look at the skills that are most in demand and hardest to find. Those two skills that are most in demand and will be hardest to find in the future are critical thinking and problem solving. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. If you happen to miss this amazing conference that Pasadena City College put on about the future of work last week, then we have a treat for you. Josh Davies gave a stellar keynote presentation about what we can use from the lessons of this year, the challenges of 2020, and how we can use them to leverage our predictions in order to prepare and pivot for a more successful future of work. And now it brings me much pleasure to introduce to you our keynote speaker, Mr. Josh Davies, CEO at the Center for Ethic Development. Welcome, Josh. Thank you very much, Sal, Patrice. So the future of work is something that is a critical topic as we look at today, not just for this conference, but what we do moving towards the future. So with that in mind, we're going to get started this morning talking a little bit more about what 2020 has meant. Not that it's hindsight, but more that it's foresight and what we're going to be doing and learning from the lessons of this year. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with me, uh, my name is Josh Davies, and I'm the CEO in an organization called the Center for Work Ethic Development. The Center for Work Ethic Development is an organization based out of Denver, Colorado, that partners with organizations around the country and around the world. What we try and do is help people really get connected to the resources to help them get employment. So with that in mind, I'm going to be sharing with you today some of the things that we've learned and that you can use to help innovate, drive, and really learn from the shared experiences of 2020. Again, the organization that I work with is nationwide, and so we've gotten a chance to work with people all over the country. And if we're going to talk about the future, I think it's important, though, to start looking at the past. So with that in mind, I'd like you all to take you on a little time machine with me this morning. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take you back in time. We're going to go all the way back. See if you can 
remember back this far. We're going to go to January 1st, 2020. I don't know if you remember January 21st, uh, January 1st of 2020. It was a magical day. We thought there was so much ahead of us. And then the pandemic hit. And then we locked down. Then we had massive unemployment, all under the specter of increasing racial inequality. And just to make 2020 that much more interesting, we even had murder hornets. This year has had a little bit of everything for us, right? And everyone talks about how unprecedented 2020 is and how unprecedented things are. But the reality is when you look at what we've done, 2020 is not unprecedented. What 2020 is, is exposing and accelerating emerging trends that we've already seen coming. There's really four trends that have been driving and growing over the last two and three decades. These trends impact all of us, but the workforce in particular is at particular crossroads because these four trends are all coming together and have been accelerated. Now think of it this way. Think that the trends were like this fire pit and what 2020 is, is like this stupid guy throwing gasoline already on it that explodes everywhere, right? 2020 is simply blowing up the things that were already happening. Right? There's the talk about the future of work, about how automation and artificial intelligence are going to change the nature of work and really drive structural change. But there's also this increasing interconnectivity within the country, within the world, and the ability to work anywhere, anytime. Then you also have this increasing divide, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, whether or not that's in the fields of money, education, resources, or as Mr. Ramon talked about, the digital divide. Right? Those things have been emerging trends. And of course, on top of all of that, it's built on an educational system that has really been, quite frankly, not evolving at the speed it needed to in order to meet the needs of our generations. These four trends have all come together and accelerated at a rate of speed that makes 2020 truly a turning point for us as we discuss the future of work. So what do we see? How do we see these things coming together and what does it mean for us? Based on the research that we've seen and we've called, we've really driven it to four key concepts that we see happening and driving us as we move forward from 2020. Number one, there will be a permanent elimination of certain jobs, and we need to know where those are and kind of get a sense of what that means. Secondly, we need to realize that employment, as we know it, is going to be getting redefined. The big will also be getting bigger. And unfortunately, there will be some significant disruption in post-secondary education, in particular with the four-year colleges and universities across America. So let's quickly talk about each of these. We know that employment is going to be impacted and 2020 has proven this more than anything else, right? When you look at the jobs that got impacted by the coronavirus, they're not evenly distributed, right? It was estimated that the top third of jobs in America, in terms of payment, those jobs are basically all recovered. It's the bottom two thirds that haven't, right? When you look at it, those jobs are the ones that are going to be unconditionally impacted. Food and drink, retail, travel, tourism, and leisure. And you can see those aren't high-wage jobs. Those are low-wage jobs that are getting impacted. The University of Chicago, in fact, estimates that 42% of all of the jobs lost as a result of the pandemic won't ever come back. And those are mostly concentrated in low-wage jobs. What does that mean? Well, specifically restaurants, shopping, and retail are going to have huge impacts. When you look at those establishments that are closed already, 58% and 61% are now going to be permanently closed. When you talk about where those job losses are going to be, it's going to be in those areas. Retail in particular is going to be significantly impacted. And what means is these people are going to lose their jobs and not be able to find other jobs in that sector. 
it's estimated that there's already a half a million retail jobs that have been lost this year. And if you look at retail and hospitality, the two biggest sectors, here's the biggest challenge with those employees. Those are people who more likely than not do not have college degrees, don't have any sort of post-secondary education. And in fact, their basic skill set in terms of literacy and numeracy are near the bottoms. So it's not just that we're going to have a massive amount of people losing their jobs. It's the people who are losing their jobs aren't going to have the skills necessary. It's, if anything, widening this skills gap between what we have and what we need because those people won't have those skills. But it's not just going to be the impact in employment. Employment itself is going to be changing. And it already has, right? Again, we talk about 2020 simply accelerating trends. One of the trends that we've seen is a shift in employment from traditional full-time to more contract, temporary, and elance, freelance work, right? It's grown almost double since 1995. And when you look at the firms who have laid people off, almost a third of them are saying that they are not going to rehire those positions as full-time positions. They're going to hire them on as contract. This gives them people a, an opportunity for a little bit more flexibility. Also, one of the things that's driven this is the ability to work from home, right? Almost 60% of Americans were able to work from home during the COVID pandemic, but again, just like everything else that's being exposed, these jobs are not all even, right? If you had a job that required a bachelor's degree or more, almost all of you were able to work from home. If you had a job that required a high school diploma, it was only about a quarter, less than that, only about 10%. More and more companies that were shifting away from full-time work or even part-time work, they're moving to this contract, moving to a gig model. So if you're not able to work from home, that doesn't mean that you're not going to still be part of this new well, temporary contract world, because you will. You'll just be doing it on a platform like WAG or Uber or DoorDash, right? Because we've seen gig employment grow more than 47-fold. The trend of tomorrow is not going to be working for one company for one time. The trend is going to be that you're going to be out there as a platform, as a labor source to the highest bidder. What does that mean? All the places where you've gotten traditional resources, your sick leave, your vacation, your retirement, your healthcare, your job training that used to be tied to employment are now up in the air. This became particularly important last week with the passage of Proposition 22 in California that allowed the plat online platforms to declare that their workers were once again independent contractors, meaning they no longer had to pay them any of these benefits. Now, they may still as part of their platform. But we all know what happens in California spreads quickly to the rest of the United States. And what we're going to find is that more and more workers, regardless of whether or not they have a degree or not, are going to be part of this new gig temporary contract world. But the other thing we have to work forward to is not just that, but it's the bigger getting bigger, right? What we've seen is that, quite frankly, all of America and really the world has seen bigger organizations continue to eat up smaller organizations. It's happened time and time again. It's again, an emerging trend. We see it in a lot of different places like um, you know, consumer products is a great example of this, right? If you go to the store, you would swear you have millions of choices, but the reality is almost every consumer brand that you see out there is really a sub brand behind one of 10 mega global brands, Coke, Pepsi, General Mills, Kellogg's, Mars, Unilever, Johnson, Johnson, Procter Gamble, Nestle Craft, right? Those companies pretty much control everything under the sub brands that you may not know. And it comes to the future. One of the things we've learned now with moving from a, a business to business to a business to consumer model is that distribution is going to become critical. And really, you start to look at the big of the big and what they're doing is absorbing smaller companies. When you look towards the future of distribution, regardless of whether it's product, content, 
even when you start to look at it, right, bandwidth, you see there's really three major players that are going to be emerging. Walmart, Amazon, and Alibaba. These three companies, these global behemoths are buying up more because they've got more and more power and more and more money to buy up rivals and competitors. Right? You just look at their stock prices over this year. They've blown up. Amazon, already a huge company, has now grown over 70% this year. Walmart's up nearly 25%. Alibaba's up a little over a quarter. And what does that allow them to do? Buy and buy more companies, more rivals. And this just further consolidates their power. Right? What happened this year? Walmart bought TikTok, an online platform. Right? Why? It's just a great way to reach younger consumers that continue to expand their reach and breadth. In the same way, a couple of years ago, Amazon bought out all of Whole Foods. Companies are going to continue to buy these brands for distribution. And that's going to impact all of us because we're going to have fewer and fewer choices, both of where to work and where to purchase. And that creates all sorts of logistical challenges. If you just talk about the wealthiest Americans during this time, they've also gotten bigger, right? The richest 1% of Americans now control 31% of the nation's wealth, while the bottom 50 owns just 2%. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poor. And education is also going to be a challenge. Because again, education has been seen traditionally as the golden ticket to help us get out of the middle class, to get into the middle class, right? To help us get to these new places. But the post-secondary math isn't working as well as it once did. In fact, we're seeing some real cracks in the infrastructure of post-secondary education. Again, in particular with our four-year universities and colleges across the United States. Part of the problem is this. There's been spiraling costs of the cost of getting a four-year degree, and yet the value of that degree has remained relatively stagnant during that time. Well, what does this mean? Fewer and fewer people are choosing to go to college, and the ones who do end up with more and more debt. We're almost at $1.5 trillion in student debt. But this isn't the only problem for colleges and universities who are facing this challenge with ROI for their consumers. We're also increasing a first time for a while a challenge with demography because fewer and fewer college-age students are being available. Right? We're finding that this population decrease as a result of moving out of the millennial boom into the Gen Z era is meaning that there are fewer and fewer college students even available, and fewer and fewer of those are choosing to go to traditional four-year universities. And then the pandemic has come, and it's wrecked all sorts of havoc. It's estimated that 40% of the incoming freshman class this year is going to defer, and those numbers are even higher for Black and Latinx students. And the challenge is once you take a year off, it's harder and harder to get back in. In particular, if you're a first-generation student, you need to have that momentum to keep going. And when you don't, it's very difficult to get back into that path, leading further again into inequities around income and race. But for our colleges themselves, it creates a huge economic strain, right? When you look at this, this is a, a chart laying out three different ways that colleges could be impacted from the pandemic. This was done over the summer. One was that the virus was contained, that's the far left, where you were in person in fall. We obviously did not hit that uh, benchmark. The middle one is if it was reoccurring, but we were able to go in person in January of 2021. Well, I, I think we're about to miss that hurdle. The third one on the far right is the pandemic escalation where we're online until summer or fall or 2021. And unfortunately, I really do think that's where we're headed. Look at those numbers. You see 57%, 77%, 33%, and 60%. Those are the colleges that have significant gaps between their incoming revenue and their expenses, meaning that they are financial risk. A full 43% of private not-for-profit colleges and universities are facing massive, massive gaps between where their income is and where their revenues are. 
I mean, where the revenues are and where their expenses are. And this is putting colleges and universities at risk, high risk. 345 are risk of shutting their doors in the next five or six years because they do not have the runway they used to have. So what do we see 2020 causing? Massive job losses, in particular with low-skilled, low-paid employees. Second of all, the redefining of employment to move to more contract temporary work away from full-time that helps give us the benefits we need. Third, that the rich are getting richer. There's consolidation in the marketplace. And fourth, that post-secondary education is going to face a huge impact in terms of financial and in students. So at this point, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is crazy. This is awful. What are we going to do? We can panic. We can freak out if we want to. But the reality is that's not going to help us. That's not going to help our students. That's not going to help our institutions. What we need to do instead is we need to look ahead at where we are and use 2020 and the lessons of 2020 to prepare us, to prepare our students and our programs to be more successful. So let's channel our inner Boy Scout, our inner Girl Scout, and get prepared. Let's find out how we can use 2020 to plan for the future. With that in mind, I want to give you five different ways that we can use 2020 as foresight to prepare for the future of CTE. How can we transform our programs and what we do to better meet this new world and the challenges that we know it's going to face? Let's start with number one. We need to stop repeating repetitive reiterations. We need to stop anything and stop training for jobs and stop doing things that are repetitive. Because here's what we know. In a future where artificial intelligence and automation are taking over, the jobs most at risk will be the ones that are repetitive. And again, this is not a new trend. If you look at even the job growth since the Great Recession, what you've seen is the job growth there is almost all in non-routine tasks, both cognitive and mental. In fact, the University of Rochester looked back 30 years and found that almost all, 88% of all the job loss that happened was in repetitive tasks. And this is important because when we look at job growth, we don't often consider that. What you need to do is do an analysis of the jobs in your community. What are these high wage jobs or, or at least high growth jobs, whatever you kind of the metric that you use, but use a second one. Another metric is what percentage of that job is repetitive, right? If you look at this particular graph, this was growth oh, between 2000 and 2015 in different career sectors. Look at the bottom. Those are the ones with the highest growth. The two at the bottom, I think are very telling health and social assistance and construction. Like look at construction. Construction there had huge growth, but you'll notice almost all of it is that blue and purple. That blue and purple are routine tasks. Very little is that kind of that gold color. That means that while construction growth is there, it won't last. That's a dead end job, unfortunately, and a career that won't be growing in the same way as some other ones. We need to be prepared for that. Health and social assistance, on the other hand, you can see the blue and purple are very small. Almost all of that bar is red and gold, meaning health and social assistance jobs are non-repetitive. Think about that. Do an analysis around where the job growth is, not just in terms of total numbers, but do an analysis around repetitive tasks and figure that out as you look into your programs. The next thing we need to do is sort of ironic, but as we become more high-tech in this world, what we really need to focus on are high-touch skills. Because the high tech will always be there. The computers are going to be doing more and more and more, right? I mean, one of the great things about what we've seen during this time is the growth of telemedicine. Telemedicine helps people get better interaction with their healthcare facilities. We know that is critical to good health, right? You can now not have to go to the hospital. We're doing more and more work as we talk about how we can do this and how we can access um, healthcare professionals. But the reality is this. There's still a human element that you need to have there, right? 
If you're getting a terminal diagnosis, we need that human touch, that human interaction. And it's not just the emotional and social skills that are important. When futurists look at the future, they look at the skills that are most in demand and hardest to find. Those two skills that are most in demand and will be hardest to find in the future are critical thinking and problem solving. Those are the things that will not be able to be replaced by computers. If you move down to critically, you know, to essential skills and that bottom right, but relatively easier to find, these are the other skills we need to be developing. Oral communication, organization, the ability to work with others from diverse backgrounds, teamwork. Those skills all in those two quadrants are the ones that we know are going to be most essential. You move to the left, those are the skills that are going to be least essential. What's in there? All right, tech skills, proficiency with new technologies, media literacy, STEM skills. Right? It's not that those skills won't be important, but computers will be doing a lot of those things. What we'll need to do is develop the skills in our programs that aren't necessarily technical. How do we continue to wedge in those high-touch skills? Right? Harvard University did this research over 100 years ago. Stanford University came back and redid it and found the same thing to be true. 85% of our success in this world is about having well-developed soft and people skills, those high-touch skills. That's been true for over a century, and it will continue to be true in the future. Humans like humans. Now, those technical skills at the top will still be critical. Our programs still need to teach them, but we have to be as intentional about developing high-touch skills as we are the high-tech skills of the future. One of the ways to do that is to really revisit and just kind of evolve this idea of apprenticeship in America. Apprentices are important. Apprentice roles are critical. We know this, right? This earn and learn model is a great way to help overcome some of the costs of school and give people real practical experience, in particular in an era where entry-level jobs will be going away. We've seen a growth in apprenticeships in America, right? This has been one of the focuses of this administration that has given a lot of dollars to this particular area, and it's paid dividends. But here's the problem with apprentices in America today. And this is a problem even with the rhetoric that we hear around so much, is that apprentices are tied specifically to two areas predominantly, construction trades and manufacturing. And that is where the vast majority of active apprentices are. The problem is those are the jobs with the most repetitive tasks. We need to diversify and evolve apprenticeships across more of these models. We need to see more and more growth in healthcare and IT. And yet you look over there, those numbers are ridiculously low in comparison. We need to figure out how to do more and more of those programs and get more and more engaged. Use some more of our sector strategies. Get together with our career models and get together to figure out with employers how to drive apprentices in these non-traditional spaces. But it's not just that we have to evolve apprentices into non-traditional spaces. We need to do a better job of recruiting a diverse group of students to enter into apprentices. Because when you look at apprenticeship today, it's staggeringly male. 92.7% of all apprentices in America are men. Women make up more than 51% of the workforce, and yet just 7.3% of our apprentices. And it's predominantly white. Black and Hispanic participation is below 30% nationwide in apprenticeship programs. Right? It's not just enough to evolve where these apprentice programs are in terms of which fields of study. We need to evolve apprenticeships as well in terms of who is an apprentice, who we target, who we try and reach out to. I mean, a couple of examples of how to do this well, you know, in, in the UK, I'll just take this example. I think it's a great one. They did a whole advertising campaign to try and promote apprenticeship programs nationwide using diverse people, right? Again, you can't be what you can't see. How do we help really market and push this 
and different student bodies and different populations that aren't typically thinking of apprenticeship as their path to success. But also, how do we get the tools we need? Well, there's an organization out there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel called CareerWise. CareerWise is a national organization helping to create and develop a, really a transferable model for apprenticeships to make it easier for you to align employers, your workforce, and your educational institution to come together to create an effective apprenticeship. In particular, in fields like advanced manufacturing, healthcare, and IT, some of these fields that we know may not already have good models put together. We have to evolve apprenticeship because that's critical. And one of the reasons why we do that, and one of the reasons that CTE is so effective is going to be this increasing focus on not just degrees, but skills. CTE has already been at the forefront of this, right, with the growth of the certificate programs. But we're going to have to even evolve it more and more and more to really hone in and, again, be intentional about measuring the skills that people need. In the past, we've used degrees as proxies because we didn't have any better way of measuring someone's skills in some of these areas. We have to get better at measuring those things like creative thinking and problem solving. Because employers will tell us it's the skill match that predicts a successful hiring outcome. Employers know this. We have to tune into this. In the future in particular, we need to hone in on skills and degrees because a, a degree may not necessarily be the best indicator. In fact, if you look at the far right of this graph, academic achievement and education level are among some of the lowest predictors of future success. That's why there's organizations out there like Skillful. Skillful, again, is an opportunity between the Merkle Foundation and LinkedIn to try and help businesses do a better job of identifying which skills are necessary for each job so that they can do a better job of finding the right candidates, regardless of their formal degrees or education. There's other organizations out there like Opportunity at Work, right, who's doing this uh, whole piece with the STARS program, right, for skilled through alternative routes looking at the millions of Americans in entry-level positions who have developed these skills that are necessary for success, but don't necessarily have the academic credentials to back it up. How do we help those people identify those skills and help them get hired for success? Programs like Opportunity at Work do a fantastic job of helping to promote these kinds of programs. We have to focus not just on degrees, but also on skills. But probably the most important thing we need to do moving forward, if we're going to grow our programs, is get rid of this one-and-done mentality. For so many people, they see education as something that happens at the beginning of your career and then never again. We know with these 37 million people who are going to be out of work in low-skill tasks, we have to get them back to get some sort of education. But here's the thing. While 42% of people under 24 in some sort of post-secondary education, those older than that, it's less than 4%. In fact, a new study to just came out today from Strata Education looked at workers who do not have any sort of postgraduate education and were asked if you, I mean, how important do you think getting more education is? Less than a quarter of them thought that getting a post-secondary degree would help them get a new job. If you're out of school, you've never gone to additional education, you don't see education as valuable, and yet it will drive success. It may not look like traditional two-year or four-year college or university. In fact, again, Strata found that most people would like prefer either a skills training program or a non-degree credential to help them get the skills necessary to get employment, those who thought it would be helpful, rather than a post-secondary graduate degree or an associate's degree. What we need to know is that these programs that may not necessarily require two years or uh, you know, a full-time commitment are going to be important. We have to find ways that we can meet people because they're going to have challenges with digital, with 
financial, with geography. So we have to find flexible programs to help meet their needs. How do we help them become lifelong learners, right? There's programs out there. Google this year partnered with Coursera to deliver three new courses online to help people develop a six-month program to develop the skills necessary for a variety of different jobs. The six-month program is going to cost a fraction of what it would cost to go to a traditional university. And Google and 50 other companies are going to treat it like a four-year degree. Companies like Amazon are doing a huge job of promoting education within their workforce. How do we partner with those local Amazon distributors and other facilities in our community to get them as a pipeline into our programs? And then there's forces like Guild Education that's helping employers figure out how to partner with local educational institutions and get the financial aid for their students, right? When we look to the future, we know it's scary, but if we use 2020 not to go hide our heads in the sand, but to drive foresight, to learn from what's happened this year, to use it to jumpstart our programs, to jumpstart our evolution, we truly can make 2020 foresight and not hindsight. So everybody, do me a favor, wherever you are out there, don't freak out about what's happened this year. Don't freak out about where you are. Instead, put on your 2020 glasses and let's look ahead and see how we can use this to benefit ourselves, our students, and our programs. Because if we stay strong, we stay healthy, and we stay positive, there's nothing we can't learn from 2020. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.